everyone, and welcome back to season three of Everyday Theology. We're super stoked to be back, to have a great lineup of guests, some people really excited to talk with. And when I say we, if you're a follower of Everyday Theology, if you listen to our teasers, you know that by we I mean I've got a new co-host, and that co-host is Chris Green. He's going to be joining me for season three to be a consistent voice and having these conversations. He's brilliant. He's one of my favorite dialogue partners in all things theological. And so I'm excited to have him join me as we engage with some theologians, with some pastors, with some people in other disciplines and other fields, some creatives and thinkers. We're just real excited about having some great conversations, thinking about how theology engages with our everyday life. You might also notice that the podcast look longer this season, and it's not because the the interviews are any longer than they have been in the past, but actually Chris and I have taken the time to just have some separate kind of conversations outside of our interviews. That could be conversations about something that happened in the podcast. It might be about a movie. It might be about art. It might be just about kind of pop Christian culture. Who knows? Chris and I, we... we talk a lot and we can engage in a lot of conversations in thinking about kind of our church world and our theological world and kind of what's going on. So we invite you to kind of stick around and just hear those conversations. They're a bit more open and a bit more conversational as it's just me and him having conversations, sometimes disagreeing, sometimes agreeing, joking around and having fun as we are kind of in season three together. So I'm hoping that we hope that you're going to enjoy this season. We've had so much fun recording it so far, and we're just so excited to be back and to be with you again. So welcome and join along as we explore in season three of Everyday Theology. Well, welcome back to Everyday Theology. I am super excited about this guest I'm also super jealous of this guest, as with many of our guests, uh, they finished their dissertation before (laughs) me, and it's even worse because it's the same university as me, so I'll let that kind of go. But it is uh, what we have with us today, Dr. Marcia Clark. Uh, She is a pastor of spiritual formation in Simi Valley, California. She got her PhD, again, in that jealousy moment, uh, in practical theology at the University of Birmingham, and she writes a lot about uh, issues of women in the church, and just want to say thank you so much for being with us. I'm super excited. Every time we talk, we have a good laugh, so I'm hoping we do again. (laughs) Great to be here, Aaron and Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Now, just to get you familiar with our listeners, if you wouldn't mind giving us a little bit about yourself, your family, your history, whatever you would want to dive into to help our listeners know who you are. Well, I love having fun, particularly with Americans. So they have to guess that my accent is not actually from Ashland, North Carolina or somewhere <laughs> like that. Because, <laughs> But my, I was born and raised in a place called Nottingham, England. And so if you've ever heard of Robin Hood, I was raised just seven miles from the castle. The castle does actually exist. The Sheriff of Nottingham is a honorary position right now. And the last time I was in Nottingham, which is maybe last year, the sheriff was a female, a white woman. A couple of years ago, it was a black woman. So, yeah, the sheriff changes uh, her gender and uh, and um, but the role is particularly honorary. So I was born about seven, seven miles from the castle. 
raised in Nottingham in a Black Pentecostal church called, which, affiliate, which is affiliated with Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. Um, and that's where I am an ordained licensed minister. Uh, I minister, as Aaron said earlier, as the pastor for spiritual formation at a church in Simi Valley, California, and have been doing that for the last uh, two years. Prior to that, um, I was doing some teaching with Fuller, uh, still doing a little bit with them and with Vanguard, uh, Vanguard University. Um, and uh, prior to that, I was on the East Coast. And prior to that, I was in Ghana, where I served as a mission partner with Church Mission Society for 10 years. Uh, and it's been a great journey, a very formative time there in Ghana. So, again, that's a little bit about me. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much. Now, to dive into the topic at hand. Um, and it's going to be kind of a, a broad topic, but we'll kind of narrow it down as we go to kind of let it naturally happen. But, you know, I asked, I sent you that email out of the blue. We had done some recording for Society for Pentecostal Studies. And I was like, you know what? I have to have her on the podcast. Um, I'll put my jealousy aside and we'll make it happen. And um, you and I had talked a, a lot about kind of some converging issues, right? Diversity in the church, women in the church as kind of a, a part of diversity in the church and what we get wrong often about it and what we get right about it and where we need to be better. And so to start, cause that's a, that's a really large topic and can really take way more than our 45 minutes together to even discuss, but to start, if you wouldn't mind setting the stage, and just answering a question that I think for a lot of people, they still struggle with, why is diversity important as it relates to the church? That's a great question. And uh, particularly in uh, since the, um, the, sh- the, the, the strangulation of George Floyd, uh, it has become an issue that has been highlighted, not just in the States, but also worldwide. And it has caused particularly um, Christians of color to question their place within uh, white evangelical spaces. And that problem has come about the questioning of their of their, their their place in that space, not because they don't feel accepted as Christians, but because they don't feel accepted as Black Christians. And what uh, the George Floyd um, strangulation brought to the fore is that even though people of color were mourning, grieving, angry about um, that episode, it was something that particularly white evangelical churches chose to not not dismiss, and and I don't think they dismissed it, but it was not maybe as heartfelt as for people of color uh, and particularly in the African-American community. And so um, we have churches that are diverse in terms of um, ethnicities and races, 
But when it comes to issues that concern those communities, whether it be the Latinx community, whether it be the Asian community, whether it be the African-American community, uh, there is a uh, maybe an underlying feeling that it, we're all Christians together and this Christianity is actually a white evangelical Christianity. And if we're, you're in our church and we're not affected by, by white people, we're not feeling it at a visceral level, then why is why are you feeling it in the same way? And so people are, are, are recognizing that diversity is not just about having um people of color in your church it's about understanding the 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 everyday situations that people of color have to combat um which people who are christians don't have to consider every day and so if we're christians at all it's recognizing that if i mourn you mourn and that I don't mourn just because you've told me that it's okay to mourn. Right. You're the one right. who decides when I should mourn. Um, and and you, if I'm laughing, then you have to laugh along with me. Um, and so that has brought uh, up an issue. And also the political climate has has spoken to um, what diver what is diversity. Uh, um, are we all? Christians and right. that's for everyone and that should be the panacea for everyone um and then what does it mean to be a Christian uh, and particularly in, in this what does it mean to be evangelical and that's and and all of these things have brought up um conversations within the church and concerning most concerningly is the people who have been in white uh, black people and people of color who have been in white Christian spaces are choosing to leave them mm. um, because um, they recognize that you're not mourning alongside with me. You're not grieving. We're, we're, we're brothers and sisters together, but only to a certain extent. And so therefore we're not really brothers and sisters. We may be related in some way, but that right. brother and sister connection is not there. And so issues of diversity need to be discussed, not only in terms of um, uh, race, ethnicity, and gender, but it's at a deeper level than that. Um, yeah, I like, I like, and I want Chris to jump in here because Chris is smarter than I clearly, but something you said did kind of just, you know, remind me yet again, you know, when you were talking about this idea of diversity and this recognition of not having someone tell you that it's okay to mourn, right. Or to, or when you should mourn or when you should be joyful really kind of brings back to the fore the idea that a lot of the struggle is really, we, we paint it. I think it's so often kind of dismissed because it's painted as, as white, white people in control of the church, but, Absolutely. but they miss that, that power issue, right? It really is a power issue. And if Absolutely. someone can tell another person, you shouldn't be upset by this, something's wrong. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, uh, and 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 it's that issue of power, as you rightly uh, you you named it, and many times, even though um, you ha there are people you have a mixed 
congregation, where does the power lie? Right. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm still concerned that even in 2021, um, with quite what I would say forward thinking leaders, young leaders, um, their leadership still tends to be monocultural. Mm. Um, and even though there is the, the, the discussion that we are open to racial reconciliation, we are about bringing equity. Um, when you look at their leadership, it still continues to be young, white, hip, male. And so it it also, again, you know, are we, the power still lies there. The power still lies there. Yeah. Would you talk to us a little bit about what differences you see, Dr. Clark, between UK, the US, Africa? I mean, these different places where you've served Ghana, you mentioned. Yeah. Because I, I, I think I have a pretty good sense of what it's like in white evangelical spaces in the U.S., at least in the Bible Belt. And I think right. a lot of listeners have a pretty good sense of what that is. Right. But right. cast that into relief against what you know about churches elsewhere and in, in other, under other conditions. Sure. And so I, I grew up in a migrant church. Uh, my parents came from migrated from Jamaica in the 1960s as part of the Windrush generation. And for those people who are not familiar with the Windrush generation, prior of of following the Second World War, uh, England, the infrastructure of England was devastated. It's healthcare, it's transportation, um, it's industry. And so England being the sort of center of the Commonwealth, they called on the Commonwealth countries to come help us rebuild. Jamaica, Barbados, India, Bangladesh, South Africa, Zimbabwe, were all countries within the, the Commonwealth and people from those countries migrated to England. Uh, Of course, many were economic migrants, but understand that England needed the help. And so when my parents, who were Black Jamaicans, came to the motherland expecting arms open, of course, many white people had never seen uh, people of colour, at least in that number. Black people Mm. have been in the UK since the Roman era, since the Romans were in uh, occupied uh, England. So black people have been, but in that type of number, many white people had not been used to seeing black people. And Mm. so uh, Jamaica in particular is predominantly a Christian church. Pentecostalism is a a, a large uh, or represents a large uh, facet of that uh, of Christian expression in Jamaica. So many people came to to England expecting to see people going to the church of England uh, and going Hmm. to Baptist church and so on. And they came and found that it wasn't like that. And for many black people, they went to churches and they were told that they should not come back next week. Um, People brought brought their uh, Church of England membership, brought it to the the pastor and the pastor, uh, sorry, brought it to the the priest and said, look, this means nothing to me. You know, this is you're making other people feel uncomfortable by being here. 
And so what we found that in the 1950s and 60s, a number of churches were opened in response to the, the, the welcome that they got from other Christians and also to society. Um, and so we see that even within work conditions, um, the the black people were often the last in but first out. That's an expression. It, 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 if anything went wrong, it was the black person's fault. So this, this full feeling of uh, of discrimination and prejudice that were undergone by people of color in the UK. And so the my church, which or which came out of um, Cleveland, Tennessee, um, was a migrant church from Jamaica. And so I grew up primarily in a black space. Um, mm. And in this black space, I was able to form spiritually, but importantly, form as a pot in a positive space that um, supported my blackness. And supported my womanhood, which is which is important because is um, I'll speak about my womanhood later on. And so, in those days, we're talking about churches that were segregated for different reasons. So, but at the same time, you had people who were Baptists who toughed it out within white spaces um, because they were Baptists and they had nowhere else to go because they were Anglicans and they toughed it out. But if you can imagine what it's like being the one or two or the three, having to come against this um, uh, prejudice and discrimination within the people of faith. So things are moving in terms of um the integration of black people in churches, um, particularly with the charismatic and Pentecostal movement. But we now have, or we've had the first uh, black bishop um, uh, some years ago. This would have been in the 1980s. Mm. We've, we now have a, a female black Bishop, I don't want uh, want to get that wrong. I think her, I know her name's Rose Hudson, but I, I know that she has uh, she's a bishop within the, within the Church of England. So things are moving on that yeah. on that court and um, in, in that side. And but at the same time, we have to recognise that the history of England is very different compared to the history of um, America. My. Right. My my experience in Ghana was an experience of being a in the majority, and that is a feeling that I'd never experienced before. Hmm. Where you go into the bank, the, the person in the bank looks like you. The person in the school looks like you. The policeman looks like you. That feeling is a feeling that I can't explain. It's a feeling that white people in white in majority feel every day and take it for granted. And that feeling in um, uh, being in Ghana, uh, you think, oh, wow, this is what that feels like. Hmm. This is that when you see a white person, you look at them and say, I wonder what they're doing. As, you know, it's, <laughs> it's really, really weird. So, um, in terms of diversity in in Ghana, of course, um, 
it's more to do with people group diversity to see uh, people from different people groups represented at different points as opposed to pe- uh, that's determined by race and uh, by color yeah I think where we see colonization we see problems with diversity I think that's that's you know even just hearing what you just said about that feeling of being in the majority. I know you said you, you can't explain it, but like my first thought process is, but I, I want to understand, right? Like to some degree, I want to, to embody that experience. And, you know, I've been to parts of Africa and spent some time in Tanzania and taught at a Bible college, right? but, right. but that's, it's different, right? That's a space that I'm going to, um, that while maybe I might be in the minority, that's it's different from going to the majority to minority than minority yes. to majority. And that's yeah. kind of a feeling that, you know, it's it's interesting to hear you say that. And I, I almost wish there's a way, and Chris probably has better language to ask this question than I do, to even parse that theologically, to help us like understand why it's important to exist in spaces where you you actually do get to feel empowered right 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 uh yeah uh, and and for me empowerment came from the church when i was in that my minority space when i was a minority in a majority space but my 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 sense of self I found within a, uh, a, a majority church. And that is problematic, right? Because am I, am I then saying that people of color should only be in um, majority, where the church is major, in majority spaces? Right. I, 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 there is something that you can get from being in those spaces. Right. But it also means that by being in, say, a, a, a white Christian space, um, the, the 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 sense of helping people feel that they own that space takes more work. That all people own this space takes right. more work. Takes more work. Yeah. And no, I'm sorry. Yeah. Go Chris. Go on, Chris. So I, to the to Aaron's prod about the theological aspect, talk, talk to us a little bit about. So I, I think there are some diversity that we would, as Christians, we would acknowledge as God's work, right? That there's a created diversity, and you know I, I don't want to say too much about that because I want I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think that as that Christians, say, please say more, please say more, so I understand what you mean by created yeah. diversity. So I, I think that we want to say something like God has made all the peoples of the earth. Right. There's a there's an ethnic diversity that is a created work, right? It's something God has done. But a lot of what we mean by racial difference, I would argue, is not something God did, but something right. we did. Right. 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 It's, right. It's, a, it's an overlay on sure. other differences, right? So there are sure. there are differences that are natural and created. Sure. And then there are imposed ideological differences. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, uh, the problem of power comes from that second yeah. thing. Right. It comes from right. the imposition of false differences. The thing I think that we run into, though, as pastors, let's say, trying to care for people, is that it's really difficult to pull those things apart, to separate what 
what God has established. So I'll give you one example and then you run with it wherever you think we need to go. One is, you know, I was raised in a small church, all exclusively white, explicitly racist, but they understood themselves as a minority people. Like, so their, their Pentecostal holiness spirituality was that the world at large is trying to force diversity on us. We're the minority who's holding out against it, right? So it, it's a twisted resistance. Yes, 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 yes. The other thing is when I went to college and then graduated and planted a church, did my first master's degree, now the Christians I'm around are arguing that our churches should be monocultural. I mean, Peter Wagner uh, popularizes this idea uh, in our circles not alone, but he's a, he's a face mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that, you know, people should go to church where they want to go to church mm-hmm. right? and mm-hmm. they're going to want to go to church with people who look like them and think like them and have their style and so on. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, that's the way I was trained. I, I instinctively resisted that. Yes. Yeah. To realize that resisting that is not as easy as you would think, because you can have a kind of right. diversity that still doesn't challenge the way power is Absolutely. employed. Uh, right. So tell us a little bit about the entanglement of all of that. I, I oh, think wow. <laughs> That's going to take a lot of uh, more than the time that this, um, this, this podcast has. Uh, in my reckoning of it, I, I do feel that, and I'm going to talk about the American experience as I see it as an outsider coming in. America has to accept its history. It has to accept that it's the, the point where we are uh, white power, white supremacy does not come from nowhere. Hmm, it comes right. from it comes from the fact that um, there was a belief that people from Europe had a right to treat people Latinx in a certain way, um, mm. had a right to their land. They had the belief, and these were Christians, uh, the belief that um, Native Americans didn't were so childlike in their understanding that we should be the ones to take away the land and use it because we're much better, you know, at, right. at, at dealing. And so recognizing that the the Christianity that has developed isn't one that has come out of a vacuum, but that there is a whole history that needs to be untangled by white Christians. And so there's this entanglement of um, what uh, Chris has called created diversity alongside cultural and historical um hegemony uh, and and that has has birthed this this baby that is uh, that is growing uh, right now and so t- for us to be able to 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 move forward uh white america as i understand it has to go back to the beginning and understand that there is a what we're seeing now is as a result of of of, of uh, north american history and that repentance has to take place um and to move forward i'm not sure 
I, I am not sure. I'm not sure what that will look like moving forward. Yeah, and um, I, I do think yeah. there's a way in which a lot of times in our conversations, by our here, I mean white American Christian conversations. Meaning the podcast. <laughs> there's there's a rush to get to the what now. Yeah. Mm. Like sure. if, if you move too quickly to how do we sure. fix it? You haven't reckoned sure. with. Sure. 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 And I, sure. I, appreciate, I appreciate you slowing us down a bit with. Sure. You got to sit with that. Right. You got to tell the truth. You've got to hear the truth. You got to live with the truth. And and God will lead us there. We trust that. But it's it's not going to come quickly or easily. And we didn't get into this mess overnight. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I like I that. Think- can I, like I just that say thought. just one, one yeah, point yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. off, Chris, is that the recogni- recognizing that this, the problem is not the victim's problem. Right. And I think this, that what I found in my experience is that, um, particularly since the death of George Floyd, I've had a number of Christians, white Christians, white friends have come up to me and I've had other friends, black friends who've had the same experience. People are coming. What can I do? What should I do? What book should I read? You know, and I personally know that you are intelligent enough (laughs) to be able to do your own lamenting. it's like, and, and the way I, I liken it to, it's that if if a victim of some crime um, is is re- reeling from the abuse, the perpetrator doesn't come to the victim and say, you know, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? The perpetrator, I can give you forgiveness, but the, the perpetrator has to work out how do I fix myself? So right. that if I don't do this to the vict- another victim. Right. And, and I think putting the, the weight of the solution on the victim, it's, it, 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 that is something that needs to be worked through. And so I, I ta- often send my white friends, say, use Google, see who's speaking on this and not see who's speaking from the victim's point of view, who among other perpetrators are doing this and working it out. Right. I I like that. And, and yeah, I think pairing off of both of you trying to couch it in, in the church to some degree, or at least in some teachings of the church, this, this need to actually slow down, I think is prevalent because we, we as the church, push so hardly fat, you know, functions of cheap grace. Yes. Just say for, just say that you're sorry and all of your sins are forgiven exactly. and now you can just move forward. Mm-hmm. And now we take that same kind of reality mm-hmm. that we pair with our own salvation or redemption and we push it onto absolutely everything else, right? Like, absolutely. Oh, I might've harmed you. So I'm just going to say, sorry. And now you have to, say it's okay and we can just move on as if it didn't happen right so to some degree our theology of even redemption has caused a failure which i think is mainly because our theology of redemption is also at fault right well right and aaron uh, to and i dr clark i'd love to hear your thoughts on this too but i mean it's because our doctrine of redemption it didn't come from nowhere either like it was developed right in order to justify 
and 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 was shaped by people who were shaped by the practices that we're that we're naming here as colonialism and so i that, right. that's part of the problem is that these none of this comes from nowhere right like okay. the, yeah. the troubles we're facing have a history yeah but those troubles are entangled with other troubles and those troubles are entangled with our theology and and I, I think that's part of the reason we have to be so slow is that it's there's careful work that has to be done and it's not just the case that i mean to this point that's been mentioned a few times now i mean i think with my generation the pastors that i'm friends with that i work with closely my students i think there is a desire to be anti-racist yes but there's, it, it takes more than a desire, right? You have to have more than zeal. Zeal, you have to have some knowledge. You have to have some wisdom. And it, if you don't, you end up replicating those mistakes or similar mistakes because you don't work through the theology, the ideology, the, the, the practices that are set in your body that reinforce it. And I think that's how you end up with the power dynamics don't change much, right? Even if the fundamental desire is different, even if people are learning, okay, racism right. is evil and I want to resist it and I want to reject it. There's still not yet that awareness that now the hard work begins and the hard work means reckoning, right? It means reckoning with even those things that seem to not be at fault or not to be, not to be wrong. So I, yeah, I don't want to go on forever about it, but I, I do think that, Dr. Clark, that's what you're pointing us to. Right? Absolutely. And I think in addition to that, that repentance will cost. It's not going to be free. Right. And people, uh, white Christians, are white Christians ready to pay the price? So Martin Luther King, um, as you know, in the, in the, the letter from Birmingham, wrote to white liberal Christians. And he said, you really are the problem. Because mm-hmm. you want us to be, you want you want black people to have freedom. You see the need, but you want you don't want it to cost you. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be the prophet that stands up and says that the economic system that is tied to um, racism needs to be overhauled. You don't want to reckon, we want everybody to have equality. We say racism is wrong, but don't let it affect my economics. Don't let it affect my housing. Don't let it affect my education. As long as we keep it within here and we can talk about it and everybody can hug each other and we can leave, then it's okay. But to actually speak to the systems that are tied to racism and uh, the lack of diversity uh, is is taking it to what I see as the work of the spirit, which particularly as uh, Pentecostals for me goes beyond speaking in tongues and is tied to Seymour talks about this idea of love because anybody, and these are my own words, anybody can speak in tongues. But when we leave Azusa Street, can we then join with um, brothers and sisters of different race and hues? Or are we, do we continue to be impacted by the cultural, um, the cultural spaces that say that as a white woman, you're still in power, that say that right. as a white man, you are still in power? Or am I, as a, as a person with power, willing to say, no, I'm going to lay down my power? 
Right. If I know that two of us have gone for a job and I know that the person of color is just as qualified, if not better qualified than me, but I get the job. Am I willing to come back and say I can't take the job because I know that that person should have got it over me? That's right. when we begin to that's that's where we can begin to say it's gone beyond I'm being anti-racist. In fact, I'm divulging myself of my power right now. Hmm. I I can't help but thinking, especially since we're having this conversation couched in the idea of Pentecostalism, back to you know a previous guest of the podcast with Wolfgang uh, Wolfgang von Dye. In his discussion about how powerful for Pentecostals the idea of the altar is, yes, because this constant laying down of self is expressed through this moment of going down to the altar, right? Yeah. Whereas in maybe in a lot of our modern evangelical Christian spaces, all we have to do is silently sit by ourselves and pray, or we just kind of, again, just ask and everything is going to be better right. versus this idea of an actual movement of the self. Right. And while the altar may not be the fix in and of itself towards things like letting go of your power, it is a movement of the body to say, there's something more here than just a prayer, right? There's actually a physical space that has to be embodied in this moment of change. Right. And, and I think that's where, you know, again, to, not to beat a dead horse, but we have such a struggle in the church of talking about even forgiveness in proper ways that move us towards better reconciliation with people and stories of, of, of Zacchaeus as of course I can't ever say his name without thinking of him being a wee little man and like <laughs> transported back to children's church. Right. right, um, right. And singing a song. But, you know, I think about that story often in this kind of case of, of Christ's Christ proclamation that, that, that forgiveness, that salvation had come to him and his entire household. But we often kind of, think that him actually giving back more than what he had stolen from people as a byproduct of the salvation. And yeah. we don't actually think about it as the salvation itself. Sure. Right. Sure. And I think that's our failure because the actual giving back of the money that he had stolen from people is itself the salvation that had come to the house and he was participating in that salvation. Right. Absolutely. I would, I would totally agree with that. I would totally agree with that. Yeah. I had no question there. I was just going off on a tangent. <laughs> there is an irony there. Just, just a footnote to our conversation that Pentecostals, I just taught a course this summer, Theology of the Holy Spirit, and we did a theological reading of Luke and Acts. And one of the things I kept saying, I'm sure to the students' chagrin, that it's, it's, it's an irony to me that Pentecostals see Luke and Acts as the canon within the canon, the heart of scripture, the text through which we read everything else. When for Luke, what you do, you, the, your money is the de decisive truth about you, mm. right? Like they, everywhere in the gospel of Luke, everywhere in the acts, the, the, the acts of the apostles, it, it, Luke draws our attention to what people do with money. Right? Yeah. And right. we've managed, and part of this is the power of the American experience, right? In which, Pentecostalism, like the Baptist tradition, like Catholic, I mean, uh, Father Schmemann in his journals, who's a, he's an Orthodox, was an Orthodox theologian, liturgical theologian, 
in his journals, he talks about how when he comes to the U.S. from Paris as a Russian immigrant and he works, lives and works in America, it's astounding to him. He didn't think he could have thought it possible that orthodoxy would be so fundamentally changed by the American way of life. Hmm. You know, he looked at other practices of religion, Catholic, Protestant, etc., and thought that would never happen to orthodoxy. We would be able to resist the patterns of American life. But they didn't, right? And Pentecostals have been pressured in those same ways, right? And, And the closer you are to the majority and the closer you are to centers of power, the, the heavier that pressure is on you. Right. Sure. At least sure. in terms of the pressure to conform, right? Yes. Now, of course, yeah. if you're poor, you have different set of pressures, but the, yeah, I, I just, I think that's a fascinating way of showing up like something deeply contradictory in our own tradition in America as Pentecostals. We love the book of Acts, but we ignore the central theme in the book of Acts, <laughs> which is that the spirit, the spirit liberates you by changing the way you relate to money, by, like, by, by setting you free from mammon so that yeah. you can follow Jesus. Yeah, Peter Berber, I don't know if you're familiar with him, a sociologist, and he talked a lot about secularization in the church and, 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 and you know, basically held for a very long time the belief that religion would have less of an impact on society. You know, the whole um, definition of what secularization, but he had to change his mind. And one thing that I found striking from what he said was that he believed that the the Protestant church became secularized. Much to your point, you know, that rather than... um, uh, rather than focusing on the gospel of Jesus, it began to focus on psychology and on um, and on moral living. And, and actually, much of what we're experiencing is because the Protestant church has moved away from what it means to be Jesus followers, what it means to be disciples, and have taken on a more secularized view including economic, you know, and that money speaks um, and and power, uh, male power is the most important aspect of of doing church. Um, And I just find the whole thing increasingly interesting. Um, And in addition to that, the idea of, of uh, you spoke to Aaron about the altar, the altar for, um, and, and I, I haven't read uh, Vondi's work, but the altar for the black Christian has a different meaning than the altar oh. for the, the, the white Christian. Yeah. Enlighten uh, me, please. <laughs> and so um, in my work, the work that I did, was look at what is Pentecostal spirituality for Black Caribbean women. Uh, And it came out of, uh, and and I've spoken to Aaron about this before, out of hearing uh, a great friend of mine, Alan Anderson, give a talk on Pentecostalism in Heidelberg in Germany. And I could not recognize the Pentecostalism that I had grown up with within Mm. what he was saying. And so my work came out of that. And so when we're talking specifically about the altar, the altar, in my estimation, for Black women 
is a place to lay down the burden that I have been carrying of discrimination, of prejudice. Hmm. So that on Monday morning, I can go out free to be able to endure even more of this. Because if I continue to hold this pressure, this pain, I don't know what really I'm going to do, you know? Right. And so um, where is the altar? It's, I'm not saying that it doesn't hold as a place of forgiveness, a place of, of just giving it over. It's also a place of unburdening for the black Christian. And when I, I think particularly in my, my, the church that I grew up, there was a lot of jumping and a lot of shouting and, you know, and many people are saying it doesn't take all that. And when I look at the work of psychologists and psychotherapists and psychiatrists who use things like shout therapy, who yeah. use things like um, uh, um, jumping and exercise and breathing. And I put it together. I'm saying that people have been doing their own psychological stuff within the Black Pentecostal Church. So when we're saying it doesn't take all that, they're actually being their own psychologists or the Holy Spirit is helping them to be their own psychologists. And with the jumping and the shouting and the breathing, yes, it's part of our spirituality, but I think it it works at a deeper level. And so this diversity is also... We have to also see it even as in how we interpret Pentecostalism and how it empowers. Understand that um, Austin Bruce, Diane Austin Bruce, wrote about the power that being a Pentecostal gave to black women, women of a darker complexion in Jamaica. So people with lighter complexions in Jamaica in the 1970s and 80s, 60s, um, they would attend the more mainline mainstream churches, the, the, the Baptist, the Methodist churches, where there was a certain, the Anglican church, of course, where there was a certain amount of power, power again that came with color. Where did the darker African land, the darker African women, particularly those who may have had children outside of wedlock, Mm. which these mainstream churches, they're already dark, so they lacked power. Then they had a child out of wedlock, so they lacked even more power. When they came to the Pentecostal churches now, through through conversion experiences, the idea of Christ making all things new. That was taken to my old life is now gone. How people saw me before is now gone. And I'm new in Christ. And you see in Austin Bruce, these women who now sing in the choir, they now lead worship. And and this power that comes with being a Pentecostal Christian. Um, It's also talked about in Latin America, the power that comes with being in the spirit um, and not only spiritual power and seeing spiritual power holistically, 
So not only do the power of the spirit, but you notice, you will notice that um, women in particularly in, in Southern America now are reading more because they read scripture, which they bring over into their jobs. Hmm. Um, they are now public speakers because they speak yeah. public um, in context. So now when they go out to their jobs, they now have a, a greater sense of self to be able to speak with more confidence and, and are getting better jobs and their children are going to school and getting degrees. And so that those women who lack power now become have power through the spirit, which is a transferable. So it doesn't work in the same way, perhaps, in the US because of the other cultural um, variables that are at work. Right. Which, in, in this entire conversation, just makes me go, we need the altar more yes. than we've had. Which is yeah. basically just stealing Wolfgang's work, <laughs> or maybe giving it maybe giving it more credence, right? Like we need we need more of that. Mm-hmm. Doctor Clark, it's been really good. I these are the kind of conversations that we need more of, right? We yeah. need to keep hearing, and so I hope we'll have you back on at some time. But before I let you go, is there any work that? Um, people can pick up from you if they want to read more, if they want to engage with what you're working on, where can they go to see some of the work that you've done? Well, I've just written a book, uh, sorry, contributed to a book called Skin Deep, and it's the first book of its kind by scholars from the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. Um, And it's scholars from who majority of the scholars are either black uh, Caribbean, Black, Af- uh, British, Black, African American, um, um, and or people who are sympathizers with uh, issues of diversity. And I wrote in that piece, uh, which is of particular interest to those who are thinking about the English context, the Black British context, um, about, and I, I put into conversation a former uh, bishop who uh, uh, is called um, Arnold, Selwyn Arnold, who wa- who wrote a book, the only book he wrote for, called Skepticism to Hope. And I put his ideas in conversation with the ideas of Martin Luther King and hmm. tried just to see the weaknesses and the strengths in those ideas. So do have a, it's available on Amazon and it is published by Seymour Press. Those of you who know Dr. Estrada Alexander, mm-hmm. yeah. she also has a chapter in there and uh, go out and get it. Perfect. Dr. Clark. As I said at the beginning, it still holds true. It's always a joy to talk with you, uh, to learn from you and to have, have a conversation. So, you know, on behalf of me and Chris and Everyday Theology, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And thank you and Chris so much for having me. It's been a joy. Let's do it again soon. Absolutely. Blessings to you. man. We just had a good podcast with Marcia and talked about a lot of really important issues, especially as it relates to diversity and the church and what we're doing there. But one of the things that kind of 
hit me as we were having that conversation that I was like, I think this would be a great topic for Chris and I just to discuss for a while is really what do we do with people who profess to have faith history or even modern people. But I think history gives us a lot of good examples of this who were morally terrible. And maybe that's not the right way to put it. Maybe that's showing my hand a bit too much. Um, but examples of, you know, theologians who are instrumental to the way that the church, at least certain portions of the church think who own slaves or, you know, at least two of the most major theologians of the 20th century who both had, uh, I, I'm putting this in air quotes, clearly pen pals, right? Yeah, like, right. um, yeah. or live in editors, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Barton Tillich. There you go. You know, I wasn't calling out names, but here we are. Barton Tillich. No, I think we're going to call out, we're going to call out the names. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah let's do it for sure. <laughs> we're going to, at least what my students one time told me was spill the tea. Mm. Uh, but I also realized that that's probably way out of nomenclature anymore. So, um, um yeah, yeah, it's a dumb statement, but you know, they confused me. Yeah. So, so let me just say that again. So our question that I think I really, and I'll start it by posing it to you and maybe we can use Jonathan Edwards as a starting point, right? Oh. Someone who was clearly not against slavery and oh, no. yeah, he owned slaves and he owned slaves, right? <laughs> like, like that's, that's a pretty, pretty big one to start with. Absolutely. What do we do with someone like Jonathan Edwards, whose work is fundamental to certain segments of, of the, of the kind of Christian world, really not really either of ours, I would say, but to a certain segment yeah. and how do we handle, can what he said be true can it be right? Should we listen to him? If we take his life as an example and owning slaves, does anything he has to say theologically good or positive? Like, and you probably have a much better way of decompressing this question, but I'm just throwing that out there as a big wide open. Yep. How do we start having a conversation about, about this issue? If, especially if we look at someone like Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. And, and you won't be surprised to hear me say, I don't think there are any, Easy answers. And I'm not sure there are any answers that once you get to them, however hard the journey is to get to them, that are kind of final for anyone. I think a lot of this is about what you can live with, what your community hmm. can live with and, and the dissonance that you can stomach. Right. And I, I think it, it is, a serious scandal. I think let, let me add a few others to it. I mean, so you've mentioned Bart and Tillich and their affairs, I, obviously Jonathan Edwards and slave owning slave, slave holding and defensive slavery. Right. And of course in American Christian tradition, that's a, a, a Jonathan Edwards is far from alone. Right. Then you also have like horrific offenders like John Howard Yoder, who's, mm -hmm. you know, preying on women. And Jean Vanier, we've talked about both of them on the podcast before in passing. I, I know a friend wrote a book recently, uh, I think a few years ago, um, and there was a, a chapter on Vanier and they did a new edition of the book and took it out and addressed huh. 
yeah. what, what, why they had taken it out. Right. Um, I, I just read a book, you know, a couple of weeks ago and it had a, a major section of the book was dependent upon Fannie's work with the disabled. And of course you can't read that now without that looming in the background. And I, you know, I think it, there are answers that are way too easy that need to be dismissed right away. One of them is simply, you know, the kind of, you know, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. So it's, <laughs> right. you know, who are we to be scandalized? David was a terrible person. These pithy and, statements, right? You know, that, I mean, that's, yeah. I think we, we, sh- we should not take that seriously. I think, or, or vice kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, you, you could say, well, if we're going to, if we're going to cancel this person because of their sin, wouldn't we have to cancel everyone because of right. know, we're all sinners, you know? So there are all kinds of kind of cliched responses, knee jerk responses that, that aren't very helpful. They're understandable perhaps, but they're not very helpful. Right. And so I we think need that, get, we need to that get kind of that. falls in the timeline, I don't say timeline, but the theological kind of like differences of, Oh, well, we're all grace over here and we're all, I mean, you can call it cancel culture. You can call it, you know, total depravity all the time. Right. Like, so just it's, it's almost nihilistic, right? Just like, well, we're all screwed. So this all doesn't matter on the other side. And, but I know you said we can just, you know, just dismiss it. And I agree with you, but maybe just for our listeners, you know, why would a statement like, like these pithy statements that are made often in the church, something like God draws straight lines with crooked sticks, right? Like, why is that unhelpful? Because I think for a lot of people who have grown up in the age of tweetable theology, they might hear that statement and go, well, yeah, right. That makes sense. That's perfectly fine. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's what passes for thinking for a lot of people is (laughs) they're just waiting to hear a pithy statement that, they can nod to, and now they've, right. they've done their thinking. No, I, I, I think it's, it's unhelpful because it's not discerning. You're not, you're not getting at the truth. You're not getting at the ways in which the truth touches right. your, your life and the life of the people you care for. And I, I do think that it's, it's essential that we grapple with, the ways in which someone's sin, Edward's slave owning and defensive slavery or, you know, Yoder's abuse of women or Bart's affair, we need to ask seriously. But we can also, and, and I want to throw in someone else too, that may be a bit more modern and again, not to call it names, but just because it's the, the, the thing that's happened recently, Carl Lentz and his whole thing. Right. Because I don't want to just put it in con in like history and kind of, or, you know, even, even if it's recent history and kind of put names, I mean, it, it, it's a serious issue. We can almost replace the same question with is all of Carl Lentz's messages. Are they disqualified because of his affair? Sorry, keep going. I just wanted to kind of include something a bit more right. modern in that. No, no, good. Yeah, good. I, I think just to kind of set out some different lines of conversation, I think we might think of this in terms of the difference between someone's work and their actual presence pastorally. So in other words, I think there might be a sermon by Carl Lentz that you you say, you know, this, this sermon needs to be heard. That doesn't mean that he needs to be given a pulpit. Right. Right. Or that he somehow needs to be, 
you know, given free reign again to do whatever is in his heart to do. And I'm, and I'm also not saying that there's not a point in the future at which he, he can and should be trusted to, right. to somehow take up ministry again. I, but I do think it's a difference between talking about work someone has done, a book they've written, you know, a sermon they've preached, and their personal presence pastorally with other hmm. other people, right? Yeah. So in other words, I think in some ways the the Jonathan Edwards question is is a very is very different from the Carl Lenz question. I mean, they're both they're related because we're talking about men who sinned and sinned in ways that their theology becomes suspicious because right. you know, like that makes their theology suspicious or makes us suspicious of their theology. But uh, you know, there's no there's no, the risk is not the same, right? Um, for, you know, Jonathan Edwards is not about to plant a church, right? The way that Mark, the way that Mark Driscoll did. Oh yeah. There's so, another one. Yeah. Right. So I think, I think a lot of it is we, we need to make distinctions like that kind of some that are not fine distinctions, some obvious ones, and then some finer ones. Like I, I think we, we need to be very careful about ways in which their particular theology might have been used or might be used to justify or underwrite the particular sin. Mm. In other words, there, there are ways in which I think Yoder's talk about the church and authority, et cetera. I, I don't, I don't think you can separate that from the way he talked to the women he prayed on. Like, I don't, right. I don't think those are neatly separable things. Right. I think it, it seems to me, and, I, and I'm, I'm obviously not his final judge. Yet. I, I'm glad I'm not, but it seems to me from where I'm sitting that he was integrated in the sense that he really believed the things he was saying. And he really thought that the theology he was bought into meant these things for his sexual relationships. Like mm. He really believed that. Like he wasn't yeah. deceived, you know, saying one thing on one hand, doing something else on the other in the way that someone like Ravi Zacharias, I think was, was clearly deceived. Like he's preaching one kind of message and then behind the scenes in secret, he's preying on these women that he's, he's hired. Uh, He's, he knows in some way, he knows he's living a double life. Now he's convinced himself he can get by with it or that he deserves it or whatever. Right. But his theology is not what he's using to bring that about. Whereas, and I think in Yoder's case, he very much is. I mean, there's a, I think about this fairly often. I mean, there's a, there's a sermon by Jonathan Edwards, a pretty well-known sermon that was actually written on the back of the bill of sale for one of his slaves. Hmm. So, Like he wrote this sermon, right? Like he, on his desk is the paper he used to buy to, to prove that he had right. bought this human being. He flipped it over and wrote a sermon on it. Like, that to me, that, that as the kids say, that hits different, right? Because that means your theology <laughs> is, is what's actively shaping the sin. Mm. It's energizing the sin yeah. in some way. And yeah. I think the, I, again, I'm, we're naming names just for the sake of, of clarity. But I mean, that's, that's what's troubling to me about so much of the conversation around women in ministry and patriarchy and man as head of the home in evangelical circles in that the abuse of women and the theology, 
they seem to be mutually influencing each other. Right. So I think that's a different conversation from what do you have with someone who's they're saying what they're saying is true, but then they, their own lives are corrupted by it. That's that's corrupted in ways that are false to it. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting now, clearly it's blurry and Mm -hmm. who can judge it. Right. I mean, that's absolutely clearly that's not something we can, but I think that's a really interesting way in which to approach the problem is to recognize when the theology itself, the thing that is taught can, can and does create the structures or the outcomes that are the moral failings. And, and I think that is really interesting to kind of talk about that in, or as Jonathan Edwards, right? This idea that his theology, especially probably of humanity, right? His theological anthropology, these things shaped him to the sense of saying, not only is it right to have slaves, I'm going to defend having slavery. Yeah. And then we need to be suspect of his theological positioning in totality. Right. That's right. Yeah. And I, and I think that again, all kinds of nuance is necessary here and there's, there's always room for, for new, for more nuance. I mean, I, I read a piece somewhat recently uh, contending that there is some evidence that Edwards was starting to change his mind about slavery, that he was starting to come around Hmm. on maybe, maybe this isn't right. And I mean, hopefully so. Right. Like, and certainly we know John, John Wesley is saying that insisting on that. So there were people around him, people in that era. So like one of the, one of the common mistakes that's kind of made by people who don't want to think about this very deeply is, is the kind of man of his times mistake, which is right. to say, you know, well, it's obvious to us now, but you know, back then no one, no, no, no absolutely. Like there right. were people all oh, around yeah. Jonathan Edwards saying, this is wrong. This is fundamentally wrong. And so it's, it's not, it's not that no one had ever brought it up and he had never considered it, you know, like that, that's, that's clearly not the case. And, and he's engaged. In fact, we know for sure that's not the case because he argues with those people. Like, like we have record of him saying why those people are wrong. Right. To say what they're saying about, about slavery and abolition. And, and give him 20 more years that he didn't have because he passed away, but give him 20 more years, we would have seen much more clearly, you know, yeah. either the, either the, the repentance or the holding strong, which right, we, yeah. we see a lot, which we see a lot out of, out of something like the civil rights movement. Right. Absolutely. How many pastors were very against the civil rights movement and very much racist in their ideologies that after the civil rights movement, right. Kind of pretended that they were never against it. Like, Oh no, we were always for that. Right. Sure. Because no, they yeah, recognized yeah. they were the wrong side of history and now they can, there's enough time and space to go. Oh no, no, no. I was for that. Not against it. Especially when you don't write books, right. It's easy to, to say that right <laughs> kind of reinvent your own history yeah, yeah no, no no public history then right yeah i mean i it these are these are difficult matters right they're difficult matters to talk about when you're talking about someone else i think it's virtually impossible to be truthful about your own sin i mean if you could be truthful about your own sin you'd be free of it right so right. it's 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 very and you know all due caution around these conversations. But I, I do think they're conversations that need to be had prayerfully and thoughtfully 
conversations that take a long time to work themselves out. I mean, we're certainly not going to sort it out you and I in this, in this one conversation, but we can, I hope at least raise it. Like these are things that, that people should consider. Yeah. Another, another line of, of thought for me is uh, one, if we shift away from ministry and and this is a, a, a shift that makes a difference, but if we shift away from ministry to thinking about art, thinking about music or sculpture or poetry, I think it's a little easier to see that the work can stand independent of the worker. Right. right. So like, you know, Bach or Michelangelo or Wallace Stevens, there's a way in which to ask what kind of people they were, it matters. And, and, and no doubt there is some way in which the kind of people, uh, the kinds of persons they were mattered in their work and vice versa. But there's some way in which the work exceeds all that, right? Like the, mm. the poems themselves, the songs themselves, the sculptures themselves. Um, we might say they have a life of their own, right? Like there's there's a way in which it's it's something else, right? And I I think that sometimes we could have a better not to know attitude. Like we've got this work. Thank God for you know, say Bart's dogmatics. We've got Bart's right. dogmatics we would all be better off probably in, in a, in a certain way, we would all be better off if we didn't know about Bart's history. Right. Right. We, we just, we've just got the work. Right. But the fact of the matter is we do know it's history. Right. And now, and we're no, and we're learning more and more about it all the time. And now we have to reckon with that. Right. Like now it's a matter of conscience. Now, yeah. So here's the work. And, and the same, I think is true for, for, I mean, one, you think of an artist like Eric Gill, who's a, a at the time was a was a really well known British artist, um, painter and sculptor and so on, and he does really some lo- really lovely work, but he was a pedophile, and so now I know that right, and when I right. see, I, I can still, I mean, I had seen his work long before I knew his story, and then when and I had loved his work and then I find out who he is. Now I can't see his work the same way. Right. Right. Like I, I just can't. And I, and I don't think I should. Right. I mean, there's a way, there was nothing in the work itself. I don't think there was anything that betrayed that kind of wickedness, but once you know the wickedness, like the, the, the work is overshadowed by it. Yeah. And I, I think we would be foolish to ignore that. I think, it, that problem to come back to ministry though, it's, it's even more difficult when you're talking about ministers yeah. and theologians than it is when you're talking about artists. Yeah. And maybe to put it this way, based on kind of the conversation, the way that we're going here is that there are, are multiple different layers. One of the layers, especially when we talk about ministers or theologians is that we recognize kind of the work that they've created. How does that work? influence and actually shape the practices that are immoral practices. Right. So for instance, and again, not just to to pick on, but it's just easy examples. Someone like Mark Driscoll, Mm -hmm. clearly the way that he thinks about and talks about ministry, his ecclesiology, right. His theological positioning has created the world for him to be abusive 
to his staff, to be abusive to people, to hire private investigators, to, to you know, yeah. follow church members, whatever it is, his theological positioning has created this space. It's clear with someone like John Piper and his, his view of women and how, yeah. how, I, how harmful it is for women that his positioning of reading scripture and his theological um, eisegetical views of scripture have created this world. And so I can look at that and go, okay, these things aren't separate. Right. Mm -hmm. But someone like Bart or Tillich, there's nothing in their writing that would, at least as far as I know, and maybe you know of something, but I don't, I mean, you know, Bart better than I, and I probably know Tillich a little bit better than you that there's nothing really in there that would actually say, Oh, they are creating a theological space for them to cheat on their, on their spouses. Right Mm -hmm. now, again, doesn't make them okay. And doesn't mean that when I don't go to read Tillich or Bart, I don't have that perception of them behind my head, but at the same time, it helps me kind of deal with the reality of how am I going to engage with the work? And I think that's really the question, right? How do I and, engage and, with it? Yeah. And in light of what we talked about with Dr. Dr. Clark in particular, I mean, here's, here's where I am today. And, and again, not only are we not going to solve this, I mean, I, I think the weight shifts for me often depending on what I'm reading at the time, what, what I'm living through at the time, Yeah, where I am right now is to say that the, the dominant forms of white evangelical Christianity in America, all the theologians who served in that, and that includes me in a lot of ways are brought under suspicion by yeah. the racism and the sexism, right. the nationalism. Like we're, we should. And I think not that anyone's going to be reading me, 500 years from now or a thousand years from now. But I do think the church in the future will look back on this movement, broadly speaking, white American evangelicalism as scandalously bad. And I think Mm -hmm. that there'll be a lot of people who get grouped there that may not quite fit there. Right. But, but that, that movement I think is, should be held in suspicion. Everything it says about not just, specifically talking about issues of women or issues of slavery, but their understanding of the Bible and not just that, but their understanding of God, their understanding of salvation, their understanding of the, the, the purpose of human being. I mean, whatever the issue is, I think all of it is rightly kind of under the cloud of suspicion because not only do you have the problem of kind of people like inventing theology that justifies the wrong they're doing, but also the ways in which the wrong we're doing, like when we're wronging people that severely, like, you know, slaughtering native peoples, driving them off their land, enslaving people, you know, when you're committing sin at that scale and of that severity, it does something to your imagination. It does something to your conscience. And, and even if you're not writing about things that thematically are related to that, you as a person, you, your community as a community, it's perception of the world is warped by those experiences. Right. right. And 
it doesn't mean that nothing good has ever been said right. from that movement. But it, I, th- I think where I am today is it all should be held un- under suspicion. And the, we, should, we should hold it like it's a radioactive thing. Like it, it, it might be okay. But yeah. we should we should not presume that it is right? right. And one of the things that we for sure do not want to do is say something like, "Well, we know what good theology is." So even if someone sins, you know, so he, we know Edwards, you know, right. theology of justification was spot on. So Which it know, even though he owns but... right, but, but leave that as it may. <laughs> right, right, right. Let's, let's say he's right about that. There's a there's a, a certain way of thinking that says, well, because he preached the gospel, then all of these other personal sins right. become irrelevant. And that often gets tied to the Augustinian idea that the against, you know, so one of the Augustine's many debates, right, that, that he essentially gets the last word on is that the the ministry of the sacraments is valid even if the minister himself turns out to be right. ungodly, right? right. That, that the ministry of the sacraments has a kind of validity. And, you know, that's rooted, I mean, there's a lot of wisdom to that. I mean, you, you see this, you know, notoriously difficult line in Paul where he talks about, you know, some preach Christ of contention, some of goodwill, but I rejoice regardless because Christ is preached. Right. So that, that verse right. in the Christian tradition often gets pulled out as a kind of like, yeah, he's a terrible person, but at least the gospel is getting preached. Right. Right. And that's certainly what underwrites the long careers of people like Mark Driscoll, who are kind of obviously, and we could name a lot of other names of, of people, not quite as famous, but of the same type who are kind of pretty obviously crossing lines, saying things they shouldn't say, acting in ways they shouldn't say. It's pretty right. clear they're not, you know, so if we bring this more to like the Pentecostal circles, um, you know, there, there are lots of clear signs that these ministers are, are breaking boundaries. Like, you know, people like, um, uh, who's the healing evangelist, William Branham, who, you know, has these just, obscene teachings and of course it's underwritten by the KKK and he's, you know, for a while working with Jim Jones, right. Doing a lot to, I mean, there are all kinds of signs that like this guy is way out of control and crossing lines, but in, in our circles and in evangelical circles broadly, we often excuse all that either because the gospel is being preached or because signs and wonders are following. Right. We think, well, you know, who are we to touch the Lord's anointed? And so some of this is just, we've been incredibly naive about how sinful people can actually be. Right. Even people who, you know, people like Robbie Zacharias who are quote unquote successful in ministry and are ministering on a massive scale. Like there's a, there's a real, I mean, let me get really personal for just a moment. So when I was a youth pastor, uh, I, I was in my teens still, I was, you know, doing stuff I shouldn't do not wildly unlike other teenagers, my age. So you can probably guess the list of sins I was committing. You could get right. three or four out of the five, I'm sure. Um, but I was in, you know, in holiness churches, in Pentecostal churches and preaching all the time. 
And I remember this woman came to me once and she said, I heard this about you. Someone said that you had done this thing. And she said, I believed it, but I heard you preach tonight. And there's no way God would anoint someone like he anointed you if you mm. had done that thing. Yeah. Right. Well, newsflash, <laughs> I had done that thing, right? Like I, 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 at least some of what she had heard was true. That, that kind of thinking, like we have yeah. got to break free of. Yeah. So I think maybe I would put it in kind of two ways, right? The first one that you were saying, kind of what I was bearing it, kind of that first portion there is that we all need to have a hermeneutic of suspicion. Yeah. Right. Like, and, and to say that a different way for listeners who may not know hermeneutics very well, right. We all, we all have to come to something that, that we are attempting to make meaning out of like theology. And we need to be slightly suspicious of who's crafting it and why they're crafting it. Right. Absolutely. And actually ask those hard questions. Why might it be, I mean, we can say, it. why might it be that, you and I are having this conversation. Why this one, right? right. Some of those answers we're never going to get. But if we have that little bit of suspicion to go, hmm, I do wonder why, right? I wonder why, you know, Tillich was saying this beyond just thinking that he thinks it's true. Is there anything else behind the scenes? Yep. But what that takes is that second thing that you were just mentioning, which is probably one of the biggest failures of the church and I know that's a very aggrandized statement I just made, but it's, it's cult of personality that it exists in, right? Like the, like the idea that you can't question Jonathan Edwards because you just love him right. so much. And he yeah, just, yeah, yeah. and he, right. He framed your, and you might disagree with something here and there, but you're never going to question him. Right. Mm-hmm. Or you can't question your pastor because your pastor is your pastor and they clearly are right. You can't question you know, we can take this in so many ways. You can't question the president because you love that president and you will even riot for that president. So you can't question it, right? Like we've gotten to a place of a cult of personality that has refused to allow us to actually take, um, on one hand, a hermeneutic of suspicion yeah. and to say, when I'm reading a text, I am inevitably engaging with the text and asking what the text is doing in me, but I'm also asking the questions of why, why this writer and why this text, right. Mm -hmm. To help me understand what may be going on and using their life as a model of like Yoder, like clearly some of this writing that he's writing is empowering him to do his and and disempowering other people. I mean, part of this is like one of the, one of the layers is, Theology that kind of empowers the theologian are the ones wielding the theology. But there's there's another way in which you can have a theology that's disempowering right. people who hold it, which is setting them up to be abused, setting them up to be taken advantage of. And, you know, I, I think Yoder's theology, at least as I read it, can can work both ways, which is not to say there's no way for someone to read it. So, you know, if one of, one of our colleagues, a woman would say, you know what, I want to, I want to work with Yoder's theology, even though I know his history, even though I know what he did with it, I want to take that work up and essentially, you know, distill it. These are the things that I think are true. I mean, I I would, I, I don't think that's where I think what we broadly call cancel culture, which is not helpful to label, but 
like we don't want to be stupid about it, right? Like, right. To think that that we're going to be able to identify, you know, what's possible for someone's work because we know what their history is. Like I, I do think if, however, and this is and I love Stanley Harawas, his work, but I think I think he at least from most of what I've seen, because he was deeply dependent upon Yoder's work at right. one point. And, and, and if I remember the story rightly, I mean, Harwas was the famous one who kind of made Yoder known to the broader world, mm. even though Harwas was learning a lot from Yoder. Harwas was the one at, at Notre Dame who had the, who had the, the famous, right. You know, he, had, he had the, he had the pulpit, right. That he, right. That, he that he shares with Yoder. And after the fact, you know, I, 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 in terms of what I've seen, if someone else has seen something, I'd love to see it. But what I saw, it always felt like Harwas didn't know how quite to make that separation. I mean, he, he clearly condemns what Yoder did is wrong. Like that he wasn't hesitant right. to do that at all. But there was a way in which he he wanted to keep the theology. And, and I think that in that kind of situation, and, and this is easy for me to say because this hasn't happened to me. But, you know, if I found out tomorrow that Robert Jensen had a similar history, you know, I, I like to think I would have the integrity to say, OK, I'm not I'm not going to work with that anymore because I'm a man. I'm a white man like Robert Jensen. Right. I'm too close to him. Right. I'm too close to him personally and in terms of my role. So if if I'm going to do theology, I need to find someone else to, to work with. Right. right? So I, I, I do think that those are some of the, you know, the, the small alleyways that lead off the main road where we're on here that yeah. we have to consider. Yeah. And I think, I think that's just it, right. Not prioritizing any pastor, theologian, writer, thinker based on who they are or just your like of them, like you with, you with, um, sorry, Robert Jensen and yeah. me with others, right. There are other yeah. theologians that I, I look towards and I go, wow, they're really instrumental, fundamental to my way of thinking. But there's also the other part where, again, we're not canceling. We're actually saying, okay, where does their theology craft what they've done so it now it, it takes more work right yes absolutely and there's always more work to be done and i just to add yet another layer to this the opposite can also be true there can be people who are very holy whose theology is disastrous yeah and whose teaching should be rejected as false even though they themselves are someone you want praying for you right and right i i, I Part of, I think what we're running up against here is that the the evangelicalism that has shaped the church as you and I know, it, it's I won't say what I almost said. It's it's notoriously bad. Oh, I wanted to hear discernment. it. <laughs> we have to edit it out. All right. Well, sure. well, you'll but, tell me after we stop recording. <laughs> um, it, it, it's just imagine a bleeped out word for uh yeah so it, it's blanking <laughs> insane because it it, it it deals in simplicities and right when when we're talking about something like this when you're talking about anything that matters simplicities just get in the way and yeah Th there is a there is a 
and I'm going to, I'm going to fail at his name and it, it's going to drive me insane because there's also this whole section of my dissertation that I haven't gone back to in a long time. And he's in there. Right. Um, actually, no, I just remember, look at me, uh, Andrew Urshan, right. Pentecostal. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think Andrew Urshan's a really great example of yeah. dealing in simplicities, but not on, on, on Urshan's point. But, you know, for those who don't know this name, right, he's an early Pentecostal figure. He um, he's from Persia. He kind of is explosive in the Pentecostal scene and preaching and is becoming well known. He's writing a lot. He writes for the Pentecostal Evangel or whatever its name was at the time, which was like a, a newspaper um, for the Assemblies of God. And at one point, kind of during this crucial moment of the Pentecostal history, when Pentecostals are starting to question Trinitarian theology and started going to oneness, right? There, there's just one God, and that God is Jesus. Urshan starts going that way towards this Unitarian, uh, Unitarian kind of theology. And uh, the Pentecostal evangel has to do something with his work. They've published so much of his work and have highlighted him so much that the Pentecostal, the editor at the time, and I don't remember which editor it was, but the editor wrote a thing, an editorial that basically said, we accept all of his work, but now we have to reject him and anything moving forward, Mm. we have to reject, right? So it was almost like to add another layer, there was like a defensiveness, right? To go, because we were so aligned, because we, we were here together. It, it was, it was cancel culture before cancel culture, right? Like I can accept what they've done in the past, but now moving forward, it's over, which is really, really kind of the way that a lot of people engage with ministers, right? So again, you have one, one way or the other, you have the, they made a mistake, give them a year and they can go plan another church or a, no, no, this is completely done for, but I'm still going to take your sermons because they were still helpful. Like so many would do with Mark Driscoll and what he's done. Uh, there's so much of people who go, well, my life was really shaped or formed by Mars Hill church. So I can't reject that what's happened, but I can reject the person moving forward. The hard part about that reality is it, it, circumvents that hard thing that we're talking about now, which is to say, no, 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 we need to go back and we need to find out what happened in the past. What is it that Mark taught and preached so much that created this space of abuse? Because if I, if I just kind of reject at a clean break, I might just fall in line with that same theology and I might have the same outcome without ever doing the hard work of going, what was this? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's like when you're dealing with simplicities, it doesn't matter which side of the simplicity you fall on. You're right. still dealing in simplicities and that's foolishness. I mean, and that it's dehumanizing and it, it will it'll impair your ability to engage reality. So I, I think, I mean, this is, this is difficult work. It's endless work. As, as I said before, I think, you know, your weight kind of has to keep shifting as you learn more. And it, a lot depends on who you're serving, who you're engaging. And, you know, to add one more note, I, 
I think there's something really humbling that kind of all ministers and theologians need to remember. And that is, you know, there's, there's this line in Esther, in the book of Esther, where Mordecai says, you know, this is the moment for you, but God, God has chosen you for it. But if you fail or, or if you refuse, God will raise up deliverance from someone yeah. else, right? I, I think somehow we have to hold together this, this conviction that each one of us matters and what we do matters. And if, if someone fails in their vocation, it's a tragedy. You know, it, right. it's tragic. It's tragic that Bart carried on the affair that he yeah. carried on, right? Like mm-hmm. that will be a wound, not just in his life and the life of his wife and kids, his lover, his friends, it will be a wound in the life of the church as long as his work is known. Right. right? And it's tragic that he did that. At the same time, Christians have gotten by without Bart's theology just fine. Right. And, and right. they will in the future. Right. Yeah. So somehow we have to say both of those things that like we, we want to affirm each one of us matters. Each one of us has something to say that needs to be said. But if we live in ways that make what we say suspicious and dangerous, then God and God's people will find a way right. to to move on. And, and I think that that we, we have to kind of remember that, that like the it's tragic that Yoder's work is what it is given his life. And, and like, so I, here to, to clarify, like, I think Yoder's work is, is highly suspicious because of his life. But I think a lot of the stuff that Jean Vanier said is, is less so like he was living mm. in ways that directly contradicted what he said right. he believed. Right. Right. So for me, at least, and, and again, I'm not an expert in either of them, but based on what I've read. So I, I would say the Vanier's life, what it does is call into question the, 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 the kind of effectiveness of teaching that way. When, right. I, when, I, when I think about what Vanier did for years and years and years while he was teaching that, what hits me is, well, how true could it have been if it made so little difference to his life? Mm. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems true to me. It strikes me as something that, I mean, what he's saying strikes me as, yeah, that sounds so much like God, but it didn't seem to have any transformative transfiguring power in his life. And that makes me, so what hits me there is a kind of despair or a temptation to despair. Right. When I'm reading Yoder, I get angry. Like you little, <laughs> so and so, right? Like you were manipulate. Like th- that feels right. wicked to me in an entirely different way. So what I feel there is not despair, is so much as disgust and anger. Right. Like, and and, and so I can work through all these examples. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Th- that that I think is a is another way of kind of trying to tease apart a little bit of the the distinctions here. And a lot right. of that last word I'll say on it. A lot of that depends on who you are, right? If you're one of the people who's been abused by that directly then of course you're going to have a different response and you should right right Right. you know if you're as dr clark is if you're a black woman from the from the uk of course all of this theology hits you differently right it should right so i I think some of this is just about who you are kind of uh, yeah what what life you've lived so maybe i can boil it down 
And if, if we can say like moving forward, like how do we handle, right? I mean, we talked a little bit about Edwards and, and, and others whose theology create the space for this dehumanizing nature. And therefore we need to be very suspicious. And anytime we, we engage in that work, engage within that suspicion to go, I know what this does, right? So a couple of key points, right. That we've kind of both said here, you know, avoid simplicities, right. Even the fact that I'm giving a list is, is, is counterintuitive, right. But I'm just trying to like boil it down to something to move forward. And even if this is just for me, right. Avoid simplicities, have a hermeneutic of suspicion on every person that we read, whether we, whether we like them or not like them, whether they've done some moral failing in the past or not, but actually starting from a place of asking the hard questions on what does this do? How does this work? Why does this matter before going to, do I like it or do I not? And then finally, maybe, you know, being very aware of the cult of personality that we all can live in to not be able to do that, that kind of hermeneutic of suspicion because we care first and foremost for the person, for their positions, whatever it is that we just kind of, we wrap ourselves around and and we take that first. I think if we kind of all do this a bit, we can engage with Yoder and we can be disgusted by his work and we can almost get an example of here's not how to do theology. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I think exactly. that's just as valuable as reading something and knowing, okay, this is a better way of doing theology mm-hmm. because I don't want to fall into the trap that Yoder fell into. Right. I don't want to fall into yeah, the, right. to the traps of dehumanizing women that Piper falls into. Right? right. So reading that with that suspicion, but that takes that kind of prep work before there is something else that you said that I'm like, I want to engage with, but we don't have time and maybe we'll do that in the future. But I I hope this part's helpful at least because I think there's so much that we struggle with, right. In terms of pastors, in terms of moral failing, in terms of theologians, in terms of what that I'm not asking us as people, as Christians to divorce the person from the message but to better yet integrate the person with the message and see what that does within us. Right. And I think that can help where I can look at a pastor like Mark Driscoll and go, that's really disgusting. What you've created is really problematic, but I can still learn from it. Even if it's a bad lesson. Right. Oh, of course. Yeah. I I think just a, a few quick bullet points. One is, I think it's really crucial that we own our limits, right? Remember, mm, we don't know yeah. everything. We don't know everything about these people. Uh, you know, we're not the final judge. Precisely because we're not the final judge, we can afford to to offer our judgments, you know, with with open hands. So I think, you know, own our limits. Remember that this might all look different to other people in other places, and yeah. that's not ours, you know, to sort out either, right? Just like I'm not, the, you know, the final judge for Bard or Yoder. I'm not the final judge for what you as a theologian need to do either. Right. Like I, I, right. I think we have to leave room for that. Another yep. thing is I think we need a lot of humility that allows us not to take ourselves too seriously here. Like yeah. both in terms of what we're judging in other people and what we're judging in ourselves. I, I would say this, what, what matters most is that, if I'm going to censure in some way a theologian's work, it needs to be 
because I'm protecting someone else, not mm. because I'm trying to destroy someone. Right. So if I'm responding like this to, you know, uh, a figure like Jonathan Edwards, what's motivating my, dis- my attempt to kind of crush his voice? Right. Is it because I'm protecting people who are being abused or am I trying to use Jonathan Edwards sense to bludgeon, you know, his current defenders mm, who, yeah. who do annoy me? I mean, they, they absolutely right. do annoy me. Yes. But do. if I'm wielding Edwards to hurt them, something is off. Right. If right. I'm saying, listen, we need to be careful with Edwards, but I'm, my concern is a, the concern of the shepherd for these sheep who are vulnerable to what Edwards might be right. or vulnerable to those who would use Edwards. I think that's a really crucial difference. The last thing is I think our suspicion has to be rooted in an even deeper charity. So the image that comes to mind, and maybe we should just stop with this, but the image comes to mind is the kind of suspicion you have when someone you love is a drug addict or someone you love has dementia. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, if you've ever been around anyone, anyone you love who, you know, severely demented or dependent on substances. There is a way in which you have to be suspicious, right? Like you, you will not, they won't live, neither will you, if you don't have some kind of what's really going on there. Right. 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 But it's rooted in an even deeper love. And I think that that's the key, right? The key is, we absolutely have to be suspicious, but not from a place of cynicism, from a place of care. Like, yeah, this is and and protecting again, protecting the vulnerable. Right. Right. Um, Chris, I think that's really helpful. I hope that's helpful for everyone who's been listening, because I think I think there's a lot uh, and, and and it's not like it's going to go away. Right. It's, in fact, if anything, it's going to get worse, at least for a time, because we are we are being more and more of the sins of the evangelical church is being and and mainline, right. Not to just poke holes at one, but are being exposed. It's going to be harder and harder to deal with it. And, and one thing comes to mind, everyone who like listens to our podcast knows like Aaron and Chris, they can talk. That's why we did a podcast because we can talk, but you know, even in my college experience, hearing of some of the failures of pastors before I kind of, took a step back from the evangelical kind of mega church thing and going, how many I I kept hearing having issues and going, are there not any? And of course the answer was no, there's not any that don't have failures and problems, Of course, but I didn't have a way of dealing with thinking about the theologians, the pastors and whatever that could be healthy I was still stuck in that dichotomy of it. Well, it has to be one or the other. Mm-hmm. It has to be perfect or not perfect. Right. Yeah. Has to, you know, and rather kind of recognizing that there is a lot more contextualizing. There's a lot more thinking. There's a lot more being careful and even nuancing like you were just doing with Edwards and protecting versus bludgeoning and recognizing where we may be bludgeoning, where we should be protecting. All of that I think is hugely helpful. Chris, we do have to end. Thank you so much. I think yeah. that was really helpful. Uh, I think it was beautiful. I hope that we kind of continue with this too, because something, again, that thing that you said, and maybe I'll just throw it out there as a teaser that we're just going to need to do, you know, how theology, how you can have all the right theology and not be holy 
right? Because that kind of goes in with this theme that we've been talking about a lot in this podcast so much about having, you know, changing your own mind, how beliefs affect the person. I think we need to kind of even talk more about how does, how does believing the right things actually affect us and does it or does it not? That'll be for another time, but thanks so much, Chris. Thanks everyone for listening. We are going to be back soon.